0: And now, without any further ado, we are going to get to our special guest. He was on the show once, and that did not scare him away. He came back twice (laughs) on purpose. Uh, So (laughs) thanks for being here. Our special guest again, Glenn Dahlgren. Welcome back, Glenn.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: And where do we begin, Curtis? Are you going to be steering the conversation here?
2: Oh, I have no idea.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, why don't well, we'll we? will start- go through a little bit of Coco history. We'll go through your your current. Uh, is it
2: your current full time job now? Writing book, writing novels and stuff.
1: Uh, I still uh, do freelancing for, and I still teach um, game design. But I'm spending a lot of time and effort um, authoring at this point. So I'm trying to figure out that world, and uh, and I'm think I'm making some headway.
0: There you go. Uh, well, the, yeah. l- the last time you were here, which was the first time you were here, y- y- we talked about, you know, Sundog Systems and some of your games. and But we were really here to talk about Child of Chaos, your first novel. So maybe tell us, how has it been since you were here? How has the book done? How How's life been for you since being a famous author? Uh,
1: yeah, so the book was really well received. Um, got a lot of uh, critical acclaim. Um, and uh, enough people let me know that they like that world that I decided to stick with it. Um, and in fact, uh, tomorrow is the launch of the next book. Um, it's, it is a, a book in the series, but it is not the next book in the series. It is actually a prequel, and there's a lot of reasons I did that, mostly because one of the characters demanded it, um, and I needed to know more about the world before I moved on in it. And actually, I can show it here. Uh, for the first time, I just, I just got it. This is the proof. It's called Game of war um, and uh, it, it's a full-size prequel and it launches tomorrow uh, so that's it's kind of amazing. it's been a year putting it together but um, but I'm really proud of it uh, so so i'm I'm having a lot of fun it's a it's a really self publishing is a really interesting industry that you cannot master period um but you can only get better at it
0: very cool. And anything you want to. Th- now we're g- just so everybody knows, there's a bunch of links that we're going to be dropping throughout the show that Glenn has graciously decided to do all kinds of promotional links and and giveaways and discount codes and everything else. So Mark Overhoser will be dropping um, some links right now. The one he just did was a pre-order discount for the Game of War for 3.99 from Amazon. Is that for the hard book or the ebook? So uh,
1: yeah, let me let me walk through a few of these, and it's kind of fun that we're doing it today. Because today is the day right before the launch, so some of these things are available only before launch, and some of them are available after launch. So the audience here gets to take advantage of both if they move quickly. Um, before launch, um, I should say yes, the pre-order is still available on Amazon, and that's for 3.99 instead of 4.99, which will be tomorrow. Um, and also, there's a um, a giveaway for five copies of the the print book on Goodreads. And that will resolve tomorrow. So if you want to get in on that, make sure you you get your entry in before tomorrow. After that, on launch, the, my first book, which is uh, Child of Chaos.
0: Okay, different cover now. That looks cool. And a,
1: a different cover. Yeah, I can talk about the process uh, there, but um, I I really am happy with, uh, with the redesign there. Um, that book will be free for five days, starting on launch, it's basically uh, trying to get people into the series, um, and you can find that ebook on Amazon for five days, eight twenty-nine to nine two, I believe. Um, also, this audience and this audience only can go to my web store and get fifteen percent off everything, including the new release, including uh, signed versions of uh, *Child of Chaos* or *Game of War*, or even. Uh, I have uh, Wheel of Time up there, signed version of Wheel of Time. And there's actually a lot of interest about that because of the, um, uh, the upcoming TV show, um, the Wheel of Time TV show on Amazon. Mm. And uh, there's some, some interest uh, is brewing around the computer game there. I, I can't say a whole lot about what's going on there, but it's really exciting. Okay. Uh, so anyway, with the, with the coupon code Talk, all one word, all capital letters, you can go to mysterium.blog. Um that'll take you to the web store and just use that coupon and get 15 percent off anything. Awesome. Um, and uh, the audiobook is available as well on launch, which was something I didn't know if I could pull off. Um, but a lot of things came together and I was I was able to do it. Um, I actually narrated the audiobook for Child of Chaos, and I was happy to get in there and, and do it for this one. And if I hadn't done Child of Chaos, I wouldn't have known what I needed to do in order to get it done for this one. Uh, it's it was a huge undertaking, but I'm really proud of the end result.
0: Wow, that's that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you, you make the rest of us look so lazy, Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and,
1: and and the best of the lot, I have uh, bookmarks. Oh, uh, that is so cool. <laughs> is they so are cool. double sided. Uh, Child of Chaos on on one side and uh, Game oh, Four on the other.
0: I will be heading up the I'll be heading up the web store and taking <laughs> which is the thing I'm my...
1: most proud of. I think the bookmarks. The bookmarks. Um, <laughs> They will be going out with every order. I'm actually going to be giving them away at my first signing at railroad book Depot on September 11th. Uh, if anybody's in the area in, in the Pittsburgh, California area, welcome to come.
0: Oh, wow. That's kind of cool. In person. In will
1: person. Be, my first uh, in-person book signing. Will
0: you be enforcing any COVID protocols like wearing a mask? Sanitizers? I think
1: all of them uh, will yeah, be California's
0: enforced. California probably the always been yeah. strictest, anyways, right? So,
1: yeah, I'm kind of surprised that they're, they're continuing to do signings, but, um, but as long as everyone's wearing a mask, and I think you need to be vaccinated in order to get inside.
0: Okay. So. Okay. Interesting. That's kind of cool. That's exciting though, huh?
1: Yeah. Yeah. For me, uh, it's- Yeah, you didn't get to do it last time. I was, I had a a launch party planned for uh, Child of Chaos in this wonderful library, double, um, two levels, a, a coffee shop. I was going to have a band. I mean, it was going to be awesome. And then it all got shut down. Wow. I, I got robbed.
0: Yeah. Well, congratulations! So this is really exciting to just to know Thank this you. is happening and to know that's happening to somebody that we kind of sort of feel like we know now too. You know, so that's even cool, uh, right? Everything so,
1: goes back to my early days in the, in the Cocoa. I mean oh, that
0: I, is so awesome!
1: I, I, yeah,
2: yeah, I mean, I, you were an adventure game author from way back. That was, I think, the very first games we ever did on the Cocoa commercial.
1: And actually, some of my adventure games were born from my Dungeons and Dragons um, adventures that I that I made, and I think that's kind of where everything started in my game design, my storytelling, everything. So there is a real link from there all the
0: way up to today. Cool. Super cool. Super cool.
2: So I have a quick question on, on your previous, your first book. How, how did sales go like compared to what you were expecting? How many did you have internationally? Was it common to get it bought in other countries? Or
1: uh, Well, sure. I mean, so it's available any, everywhere. I mean, Amazon marketplaces, you know, there, there's... There's copies available everywhere. Um, I'm in bookstores actually locally, um, which is kind of fun because I, I love to see bookstores uh, supporting local authors. Um, I, numbers, it's, it's hard to tell. I mean, I've sold, um, you know, in the thousands, I think, um, and for an, a debut um, novel from an unknown author, that's pretty good. Um, but what I'm really hoping is uh, the, the reviews are fantastic and I'm getting a lot of really high profile uh endorsements, um, including Piers Anthony on the, the first one. That's actually my cover quote. It says this is this is what uh, uh this is what fantasy fiction should be. Um and so, you know, I think what I'm hoping for is what they always say is the best thing to sell a book is to write more books. Um so getting a back catalog, especially in a series, that'll uh, continue to get eyes on to it. And so yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm hoping for is um I mean fantasy is evergreen too. So it's not like these things drop off the shelf at any point.
2: Yeah, they're, they're not uh, time-specific. You can pick up the right. series anytime you want, I think. so. Now, and I, you, this, you said this one's a prequel. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't, <clears throat> don't give away too much of the story, obviously, but uh, how far before the first novel does this one take place?
1: Um, so if you've read the first one, there was a standout character, um, one of the um, the side companions of Galen, um, called Dante's warrior priest. And he's, he's a man in that one. And this one shows his coming of age story, sort of why he is the way he is and why he did what he did in child of chaos, because as a priest of war, he follows a certain, uh, set of rules. Um, and so it's really weird that he would be helping someone like, like Galen out. And I kind of wanted to really understand that. Um, and so he told me why, and I wrote a book about it. Um, And, but it's actually, it is informed by um, a lot of the thinking that I was doing about the sequel, um, which is called Curse of Chaos, which will be out next year. And so a lot of that foundation I needed to place somewhere. So um, Game of War and Channel of Chaos are both great entry points into this universe. You can read either, um, but you have to read, I I would suggest that you read both before going on to to, uh, book two, um, because both of them have really important information that it it would do you well to understand.
2: OK, and are you planning this as a completely open ended series or are you doing like packets of trilogies that you know follow a certain character or a certain storyline? Or do you have that long term planning done at this point?
1: I have some long term planning done, but I really do think of each book as its own self-contained story. I don't like doing cliffhangers. Um, so if you read a book, you're going to be satisfied by the end of it. Originally, 20 years ago, when I was planning out *Channel of Chaos, it was going to be a standalone book. But in its development, um, some things opened up that really led me to th- to think about the implications of of the world and what I could do with it. So it kind of led me into the sequel, um, and the sequel I think will lead me into the third book um, the same way. But I don't plan on doing um, cliffhangers.
2: Okay, and and then also because you're a game author who's helped adopt other. Uh, novels by other authors, do you have any inclination of actually
1: creating your own game series that you create based on your own books? Uh, uh, I would love to do that. Um, Game of War, especially, I was playing in my head as I was writing. it. Uh, I mean, I can't help it. I'm a game designer. And the game at the heart of that book um, would be fascinating to play. I would love to play that game. I mean, some of it is, you know, the the main character is figuring things out that you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, it is not replayable. You know, they're like puzzles and things that he sort of strategies that he figures out. But, uh, but the game itself is, is really awesome. I would love there to be a series of games in this world.
2: And, and would you do them yourself or would you be more of a consultant for it type thing these days? I think this depends on the money. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I absolutely would want to be involved. I would want to be, I would want to design the game. But if someone comes along and says, hey, we want to do a multi movie picture deal and and, uh, you know, there'll be other other games will be a part of that. You know, I would be as involved as I could be without blowing up the deal.
2: Okay. And do you have like your lead characters have pretty good actors picked out already if there's a movie deal or?
1: I don't. um, I know a lot of authors do that. And I just I I can't bring myself to do that. Uh, uh, Yeah. So, no, I don't have actors picked out for my my movie
2: (laughs) so i'm wondering too like i'm not being an author myself but uh do you have a a firm picture in your head what your characters do look like or or is it kind of just all words and then you you can just openly interpret
1: no i've got a pretty good idea of, of what they all look like um i will say though when i'm writing i'm i'm not like robert jordan i do not go i don't have fractal descriptions you know, they just keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, I don't need I don't feel the need to describe every detail of every scene and every character. Um, it's really important for me to know sort of what's going on with them and give you enough so that you understand where they are and, and what they're doing. But I I really love to keep things moving. And YA especially, um, it kind of moves at a breakneck pace. Um, kids don't kids lose interest <laughs> really quickly. Um, and, I, and most people like a page turner. And so that's what I like to write, you know, things I'm not, you're not going to be sleeping through any of this book.
2: Okay. Now that's one thing we should mention actually, for those who have not heard of your books before, and we do have a lot of new audience members over the last time you were here. So I mean, these are basically aimed more at teenagers, but obviously an idol will enjoy them just as much.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't say that they're aimed at teenagers. I'd say that it's a YA market because I think I, I can't remember the the stat, but 80% of YA is is uh, read by adults.
0: When you say um, YA. That means young adult, right? For anybody, yes, that's done, correct. Grabbing that, yeah. yeah.
1: So, um, so yeah, it's it it's um, it's appropriate for young adults, um, thirteen and above. But uh, I would say the majority of the people who read it and enjoy it are adults.
2: Okay, I wouldn't guess that. That's cool.
0: Yeah, usually I think they end up buying it for their child and then reading it themselves. So you, I think when you were on the first time, you mentioned it was similar to like a Harry Potter, right? Not, the, not in yeah. story, but as far as the audience and demographic. Where Harry Potter was made for a certain age, but the adults like it too? Or
1: Harry Potter was YA before there was a YA. Okay. I think it's Harry Potter was one of the things that sort of established the genre of YA. I mean, it's YA fantasy. There's okay. you know, lots of YA other stuff, but YA fantasy... Um, there were a lot of books that were written, I think Narnia and, and a few others, you know. So people now would consider them to be YA, even
3: though they didn't that.
0: Right. Cool. Cool stuff. So I got I just a couple of uh, creative questions for you, as you being the author and the uh, narrator. Um, what is your writing? Number one, what software do you use to write your novel? Are you just using like Microsoft Word? Or what? Is there a specific software you use to write a novel to create? Yeah, honestly,
1: I, I use Google, uh, Google, Google Docs. Docs. Oh wow! And it's and it's because I do a lot of writing, sort of in weird places, and okay. so I so, I do it on my iPad,
0: cloud based, um,
1: and I have my Magic Keyboard, and yeah, and that's exactly why. So I can I can sit down at any keyboard and start writing um, it, because it's all shared. Love if it. I if it was a Word doc, then I that would be a little bit more difficult.
0: Right, understand. I got you. No, I, I use Google Docs to run my business on, so I get it. Um, mm-hmm. Now, when you recorded the um, the audiobook, did you do that yourself in a home studio? Did you go somewhere? Were you in a no, sound I, booth? I,
1: I when, when I first started recording for Child of Chaos, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know what the hardware I needed and what software I needed. And I found out that I actually had a lot of it on my own. I had a Mac. Mm-hmm. A Mac uh, laptop, which is exactly what you need. Um, I had a mic from my days playing in a band, mm-hmm. um, way back when. And so I just needed an interface to put them together. And then I uh, found out I was like, where am I gonna record this? Cause it's loud everywhere. Um, I have a walk-in closet. And I, I read an article somewhere that says, if you have a closet, that's perfect because the the uh, the clothes dampen all the sound.
0: Right. Or, or so I just, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: so yeah. I just had to turn off all the air conditioners um, make sure that you know, everybody when else is You woke. sweat
0: your ass off in the closet Absolutely. for a session. Okay. It, was, <laughs> so.
1: it, it was really hot in there, but I couldn't okay. even have a fan on um, because I couldn't have the background noise. Um, but yeah, I just set up a mic uh, in the closet and uh, and and it worked out really well. And you and then did I, this
0: all on your own? You didn't have like a director uh, cueing you how to do things or anything else? or
1: No. So I used to be um, a voice actor slash... voice
0: director on my video game. Okay, so you self-directed.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I I did it for Wheel of Time. I did it for Death Gate, you know, a bunch of games. Um, And so I'm kind of used to that. And actually, when I was thinking, I I got auditions for Child of Cast for a narrator. I got a bunch of them. And I listened to them, and I'm like, I could do that. And if I don't do that, I'm really going to kick myself because it sounds like fun. So what I did was I doubted myself enough Mm -hmm. that I recorded my own audition. And I sent it to a bunch of people I trust who I'd never spoken to was all over, uh, over the internet. Did
0: you tell them it was you?
1: I did not. Okay, I so gave it was them a the, blind
0: the top, taste test.
1: <laughs> yes, I gave them the top four. One of okay. them was me. And okay. three out of four times they chose me wow. as the person they liked the most. And so, so I said, okay, I, I can't not do it at that point.
0: They're a completely impartial, non-biased decision-making process. Double blind, yeah. Double blind, yeah. And, yeah.
1: <laughs> and the, I mean, I think I have, I don't have an accent, I've got a reasonably um, good, just standard voice that you can layer a lot of stuff onto. But I think um, beyond that, there's a certain cachet for an author reading their own material. People like that. And the reason that they like that is because th- there's no one who better understands the material. Right. I know what, what those characters' intentions are. I know what my intentions are for, in, as the narrator. And so um, I'm able to express that way better. I knew it was going to take a lot to pull the kind of performance that I would want out of somebody else. Mm-hmm. So I figure I just, you know, beat up myself. Um, and I, and I'll, I'll give you a, a clue. If anybody ever does this on their own, um, give yourself permission to suck because you <laughs> will the first few times you do this. Um, and also I think every time that I recorded a line, I pretty much always took two takes. Okay. The first time I said it, I just, okay, I got it out there. I knew what it was, but now I really, I walked through it. Now I'm going to do it again in the way I should have said it the first time. And editing is 90% of the work. It's all, it's getting rid of all the crap. And
0: it editing was amazing. It first... was a nightmare too. Cause ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God.
1: But the first time I heard an unedited version of a chapter, I was like, oh my God, I sound like I didn't make any mistakes. It's, it sounds perfect. How did I do that?
2: I imagine the author reading their own stuff. I mean, obviously, they'd have the enthusiasm that a a, a casual hired reader, no matter how good of an actor they are, would not be able to quite get that built-in enthusiasm, knowing the whole universe, what's coming up, et cetera.
1: I think the biggest challenge um, for anybody, um, especially an author reading their own stuff, is just coming up with enough voices so that you have characters that don't sound like each other when they're speaking in the same, Uh, same time. Uh and, uh and and this time I actually I have crowd sound I have crowd uh responses and things in this one. So it was, I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with like, you know, monster noises and and god voices and things like that. Oh, uh, I, used, I used a lot of oh. effects this time.
0: Oh man, I, I, I did, did you I have any guess- audio book, so I'm totally gonna buy this. So. <laughs> <laughs> did you have any guest voices at all in this? Is it complete one hundred percent your
2: own?
1: No, it's complete one hundred percent my own. And I, I would have liked a female. I, I wouldn't say female voices are my strong suit, yeah, um, but I, that, but you know, I figure th- this is how I approach it and how I had to approach it. If, um, uh, if I'm doing a voice and the acting's good and you can tell it's different from everybody else who's speaking in the same time, um, then you'll probably forgive me if my accent is not great or if it's a female, it doesn't sound exactly like a female. Um, but I think the acting has to be good. You know, otherwise you, you just get pulled out of the world.
2: Now did you decide right off the bat you were going to go for an
1: acting style audiobook versus a narrator style audiobook? Well, no, it is a narrator style audiobook, but you can't read dialogue as a narrator. You right. have to read dialogue as an actor. And then everything else, I mean, you can tell, you can absolutely tell my narrator voice from my acting voice. Right, right, right. But it is, you know, but they're both there. Um, you need to believe that that person is saying those lines. Kind of
3: a question, kind of an inspirational uh, moment question, you know, you hear the stories of like some, uh, singer, writer, or whatever had like some thought they sketched out on a, onto a uh, napkin or something. Did you ever have a moment where like you're mowing the lawn and all of a sudden an idea popped in your head and you ran into the house to write it down or something like that? Do you have any, little stories, any funny little stories like that?
1: <laughs> well, you're talking about a career that spans like, you know, 40 years. I've had plenty of those moments. Um, where I'm you know, mowing the lawn and like, oh, my God, I just figured out the solution to this this adventure game puzzle that I've been working on. And I, I will do that. I, I mean, I'll do that a lot. Um, the way I actually, the way I design games is very similar to the way I write or I design the book, which is you just keep walking down the, those roads. You figure out sort of what the possibilities are and you walk down each road until you get to the end that's really satisfying That solves more problems than it causes. And and you know when you've gotten to the right end. You might get to a few that kind of like work, but you when you get to the one that absolutely, you know, it triggers that aha moment in in your head. That's the the same response that you're gonna get from your reader or your player. You know, they get to that end and they're like, oh, that's so awesome. Then you know you're on the right track. And I've done that sitting in waiting rooms for emergency. At the ER, you know, for my kid who's got a problem, I'll be sitting there, you know, worried. But in the back of my mind, I'm still running through, uh, you know, uh, design problems. Um, so it, it, it can happen anywhere.
0: Cool. cool stuff. Cool stuff. Did that help, Brian? Yeah. I
3: was, I was just curious if you had any uh, any fun experiences as he was putting the book together where you know, he might've have, might have had a moment like that. So, but yeah. the,
1: the other thing I would say is um, in both games and writing. So I'm not a pantser. And, and what I mean by that is I can't just sit down and write a book. I need to know where the book is going. I need to create an outline that shows me where the end is. It shows me kind of what the, the major beats are. That said um, there has to be room for discovery. Um, and in game of war, I made a big discovery just about how the token works of the, it's the thing that blunts the longing um, of priests, how that the token of war works became sort of the, the critical part of that whole book. And just thinking through that changed everything. And so um, it's now kind of the heart of the book. And um, if I hadn't been able to take advantage of that discovery, the book would be a lot worse for it. And I'm really proud of the implications of, of what happened to you know, in the, in the climax because of that stuff.
2: So that was an aha moment. Like you were mentioning a- earlier.
1: Absolutely. And, and it was more than one. It actually influenced, I'd say four major scenes and, and maybe even more. It was instrumental um, in, in that book. G- getting back to the
2: audio book for a second here. Um, Cause you said like the, f- the first one you did, you were learning everything from scratch basically. Yep. So I'm wondering, how much time did you save doing it the second time, knowing everything you learned the first time? Like, Did it take a lot less time to do, or is it still a bit of a, a struggle to get everything perfect and edited
1: right down? Or Months I saved. If you can oh, wow. That. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I had a couple of false starts when I was recording uh, that I just I had to completely redo. Um, and I didn't have that the second time. But I would say that I didn't really understand. It's something kind of trivial, but it's, I didn't understand volume leveling at all. And so some of my early stuff was soft and my later stuff was, was loud. And that even isn't really a problem because there are automated ways to deal with that. But I was going through and like leveling out the volume, anything that was too hot, I was bringing down by hand. And that took forever. And so this one, I said, screw that. You know, <laughs> let's, let's figure out what limiters are. You know, <laughs> let's, uh, let's figure out how to automate that process. And I did, and the end result is just as good, if not maybe even a little bit better. Um, and, I, and it didn't take me nearly as long. We should get you to teach us that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I am still not an audio engineer. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, there's, I'm far away from an audio engineer. However, getting a chapter ready for um, ACX, because they have an automated filter, so they'll take a chapter and they'll check it, and they'll see if it works enough so that they can go and check it by hand. And if you trip certain things, like if your median volume is below or above a certain level, they will just kick it out. And I did everything the same on every chapter, and six of them failed. And so I'm like, what the hell? And I did my my recipe, which is um, I did noise reduction. I did um, limiting. I did um, uh, – and I can't – Think of the the whole recipe, but I did all those things, and still I had problems, and so I had to add another thing to that recipe. It's just step after step after step in this particular order, and if you do all those things, then you'll get something that they like.
2: Cool. Yeah, I was kind of fascinating about the audiobook thing because I, I I know some uh, other podcasts I watch like Lula Ports edited and, and done a lot of audiobooks in his time too. Of course, he's been a radio announcer for forty years, fifty years already too. Oh, that so that that helps. But, uh, yeah, and then to hear somebody from the, the Coco community that, you know, has, has grown up, I guess, to be, you know, both a professional game designer across multiple platforms and then writing their own book series and, and then doing their own audiobooks on their own completely, like not even going into a studio or anything and just, you know, going from scratch. That's It's kind of the Coco way we do everything from scratch.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> do, it, it's
1: do, true.
0: We do it all in-house. <laughs> we,
1: we, we cut costs. Uh, um, uh, but I would say even when I was in college, I had, I was the only sort of comp sci major and all these high level drama courses they didn't know what i was doing there uh, all, the, all these theater majors were like looking at me like what the hell um but it was because i was so drawn to it i really love theater and so it made sense again i would kick myself if i didn't do it myself
2: yeah i mean you really love storytelling that's that's obvious from your adventure games and stuff back from the coca days and then up through wheel of time and a bunch of the other things you've been involved with since and then the books is just kind of an extension of that and, and drama, and you know, I mean, that's part of acting. So the voice acting, it comes in there. So you've you've always had that creative drive in that direction, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I think if I couldn't be doing this, I, I would go crazy. Um, I need a creative outlet, and this it's sort of it makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's surprising. Uh, I've worked with people who like didn't want to work with anybody else. I like collaborating, actually, with, with artists and engineers and and other designers. And there are people who just say, no, 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 I, screw them. I want to write my book. But I find that if you're If you're self-publishing, you end up working with a lot of people. You need people to support you in order to, um, you know, you need editors, you need illustrators, you need um, people to help you market. Um, So there's, it's a team. And and ARC readers, honestly, um, ARC readers are the best. Um, I, you know, people think I'm doing them a favor by giving them my book ahead of time. For free, but they are absolutely doing me the favor by taking the time and giving me a review. I've already got a lot of reviews on Goodreads from those art readers, and in fact, on the, the back, you can see, uh, I don't, well, you can see it on Child of Chaos. Uh, on the back, you know, I have a list of endorsements from, um, you know, notable people in the industry. You know, one writer from um, uh, Star Trek Next Generation, you know, Piers Anthony from Xanth fame. Um, a bunch of people who were really, really uh, nice and willing to, to donate their time to me, and, and and like the book. I guess that helps too. Um, but it's it takes a team to be uh, an independent writer.
2: So the the team the team part of of, of things and the creative side for you. Does that extend back to the Coco days or was that pretty well a solo show? Like I know your brother was involved with Sundog somewhat, but was he involved with like beta testing, giving suggestions type thing too, or was he more just involved with the business side of things or?
1: Yeah, back then I didn't really have much of a as much of a process as I did later in, in life. Um, I would say that the team activity happened more when I started producing other people's stuff. So you know, my early games that I wrote myself, I mostly did those. I think I might've gotten some feedback from you know, informal feedback from testers. But when I started producing other people's like Cinestar and Paladin's Legacy and uh, Photon and everything that I didn't write myself, I was deeply involved in bringing those um, to, to the, the final product. And I think Paladin's Legacy, especially, I got in there and did, did a, a fair amount of um, you know, creative work. So I, I was really happy. That kind of actually set the stage for me being able to do that at Legend Entertainment when, you know, being a creative director, that's mostly what you're doing is working with other people to, to make the product better.
2: So you, you kind of become a guide for the programming team that's actually doing the, the actual game itself. You kind of like give them suggestions or do you, you kind of help them plot it right from the beginning and then just kind of make sure they steer in that direction.
1: Yeah. So I'm the one that designs the requirements, you know, when I'm being a game director. So I'm the one that goes to the engineers and said, okay, here's the document." And here's what we need to achieve. But then it becomes a matter of priorities. Um, And that's really what game development is all about, because you only have a certain amount of time. And so you need to figure out what is the most important thing. And as a game designer, you want to do everything you want to do you know, to the moon and back, uh, all the features. And so you need to figure out if you're a good game designer, which ones are the most important? What was the critical core of the game that you need to develop? And then you do more. If you have time and resources, um, so and working with with engineers, especially um, since you brought them up, it's really important that they get invested because they will bring magic to the process. You know, the really best engineers are the ones that have a creative gene and are um, you know working with you to make a feature better. I, I always say, whether artists or engineers or whatever, if I if I have something in my head and I give it to one of them and they come back and it's better, they bring back magic then I know I'm on the right track. You know, if it's better than what I ever thought, then that's wonderful. I love working with people like that. Um, I, I, I I love being sort of the origin, the, the guy directing the vision, but I don't really have a born here mentality. So if someone comes up with something great, you know, I'm the first guy to jump on board.
2: Okay, that's cool. Yeah, because I mean, you especially in larger projects like they have nowadays, where we have teams of like dozens and dozens of people with you know, musicians uh, and everything. Else. Hundreds. Hundreds, yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, should, if not yeah. thousands, I think some of the, depending on the Hollywood the, movie, you
2: know, production at this point. Absolutely. But, but having everybody in that team, even if it's, you know, the hardcore programmer, having, like you said, a creative gene where they actually can contribute to the creativity of the game versus just, you know, I can actually code this and whatever. Uh,
1: it almost doesn't work unless they, unless they have that because it takes, it requires something of an engineer, especially like a lead engineer. They have to want, be so invested in the game that they are willing to get in there and do what's necessary to make it happen because game design or game development is hard. Uh, it's, it's a miracle. Whenever one gets shipped, you don't realize, you know, the, the stuff that didn't work when you're playing a game.
2: Yeah. The users only see the end result, so they don't have right. much of a deal. That's why I like stuff like Nick Moranis is one of our guest panelists here. Of course, he's developing Coco games to this day and still does, but he does these blogs and a lot of the blogs I've seen on, on, you know, especially on retro systems has basically been, I've technically figured out how to do a stack blast to do this. You know, it's kind of the technical side. Whereas Nick's blogs are basically on the creativity of the game. Like he'll show some ideas that, you know, four blog postings later, he's completely scrapped it. He's onto something else because it didn't quite work out what he wanted it to. And I imagine that's, you're doing a lot of the same.
1: Yeah, that's very common. And actually, if you go to mysterium.blog, um, I have write-ups of a lot of the games that I've developed uh, post-mortems where I tell you all the crap that went wrong. That's why they're interesting readings, because they are, here's the disaster here, here's the disaster for this one, here's why we almost didn't ship this one. And some of them are just, I mean, there's like villains in them. You know, they're, they're, <laughs> there's drama in in development, game
2: development. Now, do you plan on doing a similar blog style thing about the book writing process? Because that's another area where you could, You know, I, I took these characters down the certain road and that didn't work and I had to completely revamp and you kind of mentioned that you've had a few of those moments. Um, is that something uh, you want to...
1: I think I probably will when there are more fans uh, for them and there are, there's more interest in those. I tend to write little behind the scenes of certain aspects. So like I wrote a little behind the scenes of the audiobook uh, for child of chaos. So if you're interested in seeing pictures of, you know, me going through that process and what I'm in I had your to closet it, yeah, in my closet, um, it's, it's there. Um, so I like writing up stuff like that, but I want to make sure that there's an audience for it.
2: Okay. That's a, it's a fascinating process. I mean, I've, I've been trying to write a game, and I haven't written games since the early 80s and basic type thing. I've been trying to do one just kind of as a basic 9 showcase, and I, I, I don't really have the mentality that I remember having as a kid being able to do it, so it's a lot harder than I was expecting.
1: Yeah, I was actually worried. When I was younger, I had unbridled uh, energy and enthusiasm and you know, a million ideas, and as you get older, a lot of that energy uh, kind of tamps down a little bit, but it turns out that this age is actually the perfect age for, um, for author, for writing books. It's like, you know, you're still creative and you've got the, the, uh, uh momentum, um, the perseverance to get through a book. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad I was able to write two, because that means I can write more because the first one took me 20 years and this one took me nine months so that, that, a pretty that's, good speed increase <laughs> that is. Yeah. I'm hoping, I'm hoping to continue
3: that. Um, you said that you're uh, teaching, you're, you're currently teaching game design. Mm-hmm. Do you bring any of your Sun dog games into the classroom as a back reference for, for, for them or, or is game development advanced so far that it's just, it's not relevant? Well, so my class is about game design, not
1: game development. So okay. I, I don't really talk about, um, I don't, they don't code anything. No, we are actually, we make paper prototypes and we play games and analyze the, the underlying um, uh, cores of those games, the inner loops. Um, And, and so it's more about figuring, getting them to be able to have the critical skills to design their own product and then communicate that to somebody else. A large part of being a game director Uh, creative director is being able to communicate your vision because if you can't explain to an artist or um, an engineer or you know musician or whatever what it is you're trying to accomplish and get them on board then they will never give you what you want so communication
3: is a huge part of that
2: okay okay go ahead brian you have another question
3: no no i was just kind of curious if he if brought in the past forward and was able to incorporate that into his teaching. But it's kind of a, but as you explained there, the class is driven in a different direction. It's not the development there. So.
1: I think I've shown covers of some of my cocoa stuff. I have
3: like in the first, first day I show a lot of the games that I've
1: worked on and stuff. I think I I've referenced uh, stuff because when I talk about sort of where computers have come from and where they're going, um, because we're all the way up to like, you know, VR now. Yeah. I, I absolutely talk about my origins in the cocoa. I mean, that's what started me out of my every-
2: Yeah, and then speaking of Cocoa stuff, I've got a few Cocoa-related questions here that I kind of wrote down a little bit ahead of time here. So when, when you started, you originally were publishing through other companies. You did uh, some through like Mark Data Products. You did uh, some through Cookly Pair, like the Hall of the King series, et cetera. What, what was the catalyst that made you decide to start your own company? Was it Was it they were starting to drop off or you just wanted the control or a combination of both or what?
1: Well, I'm an entrepreneur. I, I like to, to do that kind of stuff. I think even back when I was a kid, I would like make little shops at the end of my driveway. And so like, you know, like swap meet kind of stuff. Um, so I, I started out with Brickley Pear, and they were wonderful. I really enjoyed working with the guys at Brickley Pear. Um, they taught me a lot about how the, the business was run. Um, and, and in fact, at the end of their life cycle, they offered to sell me the company, uh, and I, you know, I was, I was intrigued, but I didn't really want to sell their products. I wanted to sell my products.
3: And how and so, old were I, you
1: at this time, just out of curiosity? I was actually just going into college, so about eighteen, okay, I guess. And so, and I kind of wanted to. I mean, Prickly Pear was sort of the older generation of um, of development, and I kind of wanted to have something a little cooler. Uh, something that reflected sort of my, my, my perspective. And that's why I came up with Sunbuck Systems. But, you know, as long as, and I think we've talked about this before, the major thing keeping anyone from making money in, or kept, the, kept everyone from making money in the cocoa world were the advertising costs. And because of my relationship with Prickly Pear, I was able to get their advertising costs um, because they just sort of brought me in. And so I was able to, to advertise in Rainbow for their costs. And that's why I was able to make money in college. And I, and I did pretty well selling my products in college.
2: Cool. And um, like and when you started, I think you basically you took your games kind of back like Champion and a few of the other older ones, Kung Fu Dude, et cetera, and brought them under your own umbrella. And then you published some new ones that you did yourself too. What what? made you decide to suddenly get third-party authors coming in was it was it they approaching you was it you approaching them because you thought that a good product was it a combination of both
1: I always kind of knew in the back of my head that it would be nice to have other people writing for me because I was a full-time student in comp sci and I only had so much time to be writing and I couldn't really be working on more than one product at a time actually oh, had I drama got a class too so <laughs> yep. <laughs> I actually got college credit for soundtracks um as an independent study Oh, and I got, I had my Kium Guy was my final for my computer graphics class. So I was able to actually kind of make those two worlds meet, um, in, in a couple of instances. But, um, part of it was, yeah, I, I was looking for people. Once Sundock System sort of established itself as one of the premier game shops, um, for the Coco, then people started coming to me too. And I had a lot of submissions that I said no to. Um, there were, and, and but occasionally, uh, one would rise above the pack and I'd say, yeah, absolutely. Um, but there were also people that I, I went, I, I spoke to, I knew, um, we had the whole conversation about Sinistar, the whole, yeah. you know, uh, with Dave Dyes. Um, he, he and I were friends at that point. He still wanted to do it, but he'd kind of been blackballed by Lonnie at that point. So he you know, couldn't do it on his own. So I gave him that opportunity. And, and the reason that he didn't have his name attached was because of that because uh, he didn't want the attention. Um, but, uh, you know, my brother actually wrote half of soundtracks. Um, I created a relationship with Jeff Steidel, who ended up finishing Contras and did Graphic Express 2.0. He was a great guy. Um, and, and Photon, too, which is one of
2: my favorite and, games. And Photon,
1: right, exactly. Um, but once I created those relationships, people understood they could trust me, um, which is a was kind of a big deal back then because there were some publishers that, didn't pay their bills or or whatever yeah, but yeah we have a few stories <laughs> yeah I always paid my bills I actually had an automated system that I wrote myself that just went through all of my my receipts and just totaled up how many I sold and that's how much money I paid out every month and once people understood that like the first after the first month they're like oh I should keep writing for this guy because he pays me but he sells them and he pays the money so um so yeah it it worked out it was a it was a really good experience for me not only financially, but um, but it set me up for the rest of my life.
2: And I've always been curious about this from back in the heyday of the Cocoa, because I mean, I've had a little bit of experience when, when it went down to smaller Cocoa Fest and stuff. But you were there during the Rainbow Fest era, like when the shows were huge. Right. How much of a juice to sales did you get at the shows, especially if you revealed a new product? And how long did that last when you were doing the mail order after the fact?
1: Well, um, I don't know that that it increased sales after the fact. I mean, I don't know that I got more mail orders, you know, because the shows happened, but I absolutely sold, you know, I want to say thousands of dollars worth of of merchandise at a, at a rainbow fest. Um, it was always worth going. No question. And there i I made a lot of friends. I made a lot of contacts and it was fun. It was, I I, I met Steve York there. That was a, that was a, a really fun time. Um, Actually, everything was going right at that, that Rainbow Fest. I met Steve York, I met Dave Dice, and I found $20 on the road. So <laughs> <laughs> I felt like everything was going my, my way that time. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a blast. But I would say sales were pretty consistently good always, um, especially when I had a new release. You know, when a new Sundog ad came out, um, people were waiting for it, they were looking for our new stuff especially when I got into the inside front cover and that full color ad. People told me they bought things just because they were so colorful and they needed to have the product. They literally said
2: Yeah, I guess that proves that the color advertising works and that's why they charge more for the, the
3: privilege. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're, you're saying that uh, this is the one that you did in college there? Is this the... What's that? You, is this the, the, um, the common guy? uh Guy, i did in college
1: uh yes yeah. yep yep I, I actually my first product was kung fu dude that was my the first okay. sundog systems yep. game um and that was for the coco two and coco three uh and coco three just came out when i in i think it was my freshman year in college and so i started figuring out and then i think i made um this was my first coco three product and that is in quest the star lord and that was an adventure game and my my roots were definitely in adventure games, but I also had a real love of those fighting games, the martial arts fighting games. And That's why I kept coming back to them. kept trying to kept trying to make my uh, uh, my the model of those better and better and better. I did Warrior King, um, and then I did Hume Guy. Hume Guy was definitely better because of of what I learned from Warrior King. I think I told this story last time I was here, but in Warrior King, um, I I I got the frame rate up as much as possible by blocking off a bunch of the the rest of the the screen so it's only a box on screen. But there was a flickering and Dave Dye's made fun of me because I had the flickering. I'm like you know what am I supposed to do about that? I can't figure out how to, he said well just you know sync it on the horizontal sync. And I'm like oh yeah that makes sense. And so I did that for Kium Guy and uh then he didn't make fun of me after. Did the
3: uh did the artwork that's on the front here is this your artwork or no, I
1: can't remember it's the same guy who did uh, this one and and this one and this one um, and I can't remember the name of the guy, but he was a guy in Pittsburgh who lived down the street. I mean he was an artist he was a professional artist and he charged me fifty bucks per picture and so I just I had him do everything. I mean I was a kid <laughs> at the time I was a high school kid and I was having this I was I was directing art.
2: I was just going to ask you, uh, what was your very first Cocoa Game published? That was Hall of the King 1?
1: Hall of the King what? 1. Actually, do I, I think I have that. Here.
2: And how old were you when, when, you, when you published oh, that with Hall,
1: Brickley Bear? Hall of the King 1. Um, I, I was 16, I think. Um, I, I only had like a couple of other games before that that, were, that won some programming contests, and they were adventure games. Um, Demon Cross, I think, was my first game. Oh, no, Beyond the Silver Pain was my first game, and then Demon Cross. Beyond the Silver Pain was just me trying to code something based on a, a little choose-your-own-adventure module that I had. I just, And I thought, hey, this, this could work in BASIC. And so I wrote it out on a typewriter. I didn't have a computer. I just wrote something in BASIC, and then I tried. <laughs> I went to a department store, and they had an Atari 400, and I tried typing it in. On, in the on a 400? But, um, I think so,
2: yeah. Oh, God, I wouldn't want to type anything on that.
1: Um, and I never got through it. Uh, Eventually I did code it for the cocoa though, but it was, you know, someone, it was someone else's intellectual property. So I couldn't sell it or anything, but that was my first, my first uh, coding experience.
2: And that was your first taste of it like writing your own adventure game. Well, not writing the the plot, et cetera, but, you know, writing the code.
1: Yeah. I was just, I was fascinated. I was fascinated ever since adventure, you know, Colossal gave when I first started playing that, I was like, Oh my God, this changes everything.
2: So as far as the timeline goes, when you when you created Sundog, were you, you were already in college when you were starting it or were you still in the tail end of high school when Sundog kind
1: of got started? I think Sundog was in my head when I was in in uh, high school, but I didn't actually launch it until I got to college. And I, I, I put a lot of things in place to make that happen. I I, um, I mean, so I knew I was going to launch it with a new game. I knew I was going to launch it with um, with my sort of ad the ad done and, um, you know, all, everything in place with Rainbow. So um, I don't remember if I started thinking about it when I hit college, but I'm pretty sure I was already in motion at that point.
2: And having been to, to college myself a bit, I mean, that's that can be a pretty heavy workload on its own. And especially you were with drama class, something else. Like, Did did you even think about the fact that you would have no time to sleep or anything else? Cause you were doing, running your own company, you were going to drama and you were doing your comp site degree all at the same time.
1: Uh No, I, I loved it. I, I don't, I remember being uh, there being a few all nighters, um, especially coding some of my, some of the 400 level stuff. I had to code a a concurrent operating system and my partner was, he didn't help at all. So I was all down to me. Um, And I remember not getting any sleep for pretty much a week, but overall, I mean, I love those drama classes and they actually energized me more than more than anything else. Although I, a couple of them were early in, they didn't see me a lot and i had to explain i had uh, late night computer lab I, I couldn't make it um so they were uh, they were actually kind they they didn't they didn't they gave me some slack because of that um but again i i i loved it i loved the 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 running the business aspect of it and i loved the coding of it it was my hobby as well as my job so um that's that's just how i spent i actually end up i ended up playing some D&D in college too
0: I was with, Jeez, with a group. the group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had some fun. Just out of curiosity, what was a ballpark cost to do a full color ad in Rainbow back in the day?
1: So, it really depends on placement. If you have a cover, the back cover was one price, inside covers were another price, and front cover was another price. Um, I remember I remember a half page ad non-color Ran under five hundred dollars, and the inside front cover ran about twelve hundred, and I think it was like three thousand to anybody else. But because I had that previous relationship, that's how much it cost me.
2: And that would that would be for a single month, or would that be for like half a year? Oh no, that's single month. Okay.
1: Oh my God! I mean, they they would have been inundated with, uh... and that was the other thing: is you had to have the opportunity to get that. Um, they didn't give that out. I mean, only three people can have the cover. You know, you have the inside front, inside back, and then back cover. And so, if you weren't in line, if he didn't, if Lonnie didn't like you, you would never even get the opportunity.
2: And was it like based on a, a bidding war, like the top three, or was it the top three favorites of Lonnie? Yeah, it was. It was basically
1: ones? he would come to you and he would offer it to you. And if you said no, he would go somewhere else. And then originally, he offered me the inside front cover, and I said no because he wasn't giving me the deal that he promised me. And he was forcing me to take it for a certain amount of time that I was uncomfortable with. And so it, I struggled because I knew the opportunity would go away. Um, and so, and after a while, um, when I finally got my act together and I was ready with a full color ad, because he was going to take one of my black and white ads and like put some color on it or something. And it was going to look like crap and it was going to cost me way more. And I was like, I, I, I can't, I can't justify that. And so by saying no, he knew that he wanted me in that space. And so he eventually came back after a few months and said, okay, I'll give you the original, the original deal. And I will, you know, and you can put whatever you want in there. Um, and that gave me enough time to actually put a full color ad together. And so, and I don't think he ever regretted having me in there, but it was that whole Dave Dyes debacle. I think that's one of the reasons he tried forcing that large, that, that higher price on me.
2: Yeah. I mean, so basically you, you learn from Dave Dyce's pain and, and that, Kind of saved you to keep your company going and become much more successful in the long run.
1: Well, just just to recap, um, the the short version is Dave Dyes had the inside front cover, or he had the the back cover. I don't know. Um, and Lonnie was charging him more than he was going to be charging me, and he didn't know that Dave and I were friends. And so I talked about that with Dave. Dave got really upset, went to Lonnie, and said, "Listen, I know you're charging people other people less. I want to be charged less." And so. Um, and Lonnie said, you know, kick rocks. And so he, he went away and that's when he tried raising my rate. So it was like that, that whole debacle was, he got mad at me for talking to Dave. I had no idea that I was even doing anything wrong. I was, I was a dumb kid. Um, and, and so, you know, the end result was I ended up in the place where I was supposed to be at the, at the deal that I was supposed to, to have. But Dave was a casualty of that whole thing. Yeah,
2: I, me- I remember because uh, Bill Noble and I used to visit Dave every time because we all fall connects, and we'd see him at you know Rainbow Fests every year until he just suddenly stopped, and it was rather sudden, and none yeah. of us at the time knew what the heck had happened.
1: Yeah, that's what happened. It was it was him and Lonnie, and Lonnie <laughs> Lonnie had an issue with him, partially because he was Canadian. I think he made a comment that it will show those Canadians a thing or two. I'm like, well, what does that even mean? I, I don't even think I knew that Dave was Canadian at that point. <laughs> Yeah, it's hey
0: strange. Uh, Jim Rye has a question. Is your audiobook going to be available on cassette?
1: On cassette? Are audiobooks
0: available on cassette? Traditionally they yeah. have been. Really? That's kind, that's I mean, kind of retro so... humor though.
1: <laughs> 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 um I, I could put it on a cassette for you maybe. <laughs> <sighs> um I mean it's in, it's through ACX and ACX one of the reasons I went through them, and it's an, it's an exclusive through ACX, which is Audible. Um, they're owned by Amazon, but they give two different royalty sets. Um, either you are making, I think it's 40%, um, or you're making 20%. If you don't go with them exclusively, it's 20%. And since they command most of the market, which Amazon does and you know, KDP does as well, It's like it kind of, they've made it, they've incentivized you to the point where it kind of makes sense to go ahead and do an exclusive. So I don't think that they offer cassette, Um, which I wish they did for people who have it, but most people just download it through their phone.
2: Yeah, I'd imagine that's probably the easiest way for there's no actually, cost distribution
1: basically. They, right, right, and they yeah. just stream it. Before and the so they,
0: internet, you used to be able to buy audiobooks on cassette and CDs and stuff like that. I I remember yeah. buying audiobooks on a, you know, a big thick stack of CDs you needed to get through uh, an unabridged audiobook. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I actually I think I listened to like a um one of the Dragon Lance books on tape. <laughs> Books on tape was a thing.
0: Yeah, it actually was, yeah. yeah. Cool.
2: Yeah, it's nice having you on here just to go and kind of go over the old stories and even you know, some of your relationships with other published software authors at the time. Like you said, you were a friend with Dave Dyes and stuff. Did you get those kind of relationships later on when you were moved to the PC market where you would have friends in the industry that you guys would like play to IDs off each other type thing, even if you're at rival companies or the company's getting so big, you were so busy concentrating with your own team that you didn't really get a chance to mingle.
1: No, honestly, um, I would say it was way more intense um, in the PC uh, arena. Um, there's a thing called Game Designers uh, Conference uh, or Game, uh, Game Development Conference at this point, GDC. And when I first started making games like, uh, I have these to show too, so uh, like uh, you know, Death Gate and uh, Wheel of Time, when I first was designing those games, um, well, actually, when I first was designing my early, early, early adventure games like, uh, you know, Gateway, um, I went to the, the GDC and they, it was really small. And so, and I was kind of, I felt like a rock star because I had actually written a game that was out there in stores and stuff. Um, and I got to know a lot of people who were doing the same sort of thing. And I actually joined the GDW, which is the Game Designers Workshop. And that was um, a lot of, at the time, really high profile designers. And they would get together every year and do a workshop. And um, the way that it worked is it would go, you go around the table on this. We were all sort of in a in a conference room in sort of, you know, the, the square setup of tables. So everybody was looking sort of uh, in, in the center and you would go around and you would have, you know, like 10, 15 minutes to talk about a game design issue or problem, or even just topic. And then you'd get all of these really high level, you know, like um, Warren Spector was there. And and, um, um, I mean, I I can't think of all the names that were there, but some of the, the biggest games that you've played were sitting at that table. And we would, you could just grill them on issues that you had for game development and design. And so I remember, um, being really intimidated by all these people the first couple of times I went, and uh, but I made some great friendships. Um, Lee Sheldon um, is a guy I met there, and he's, he's actually on the cover of my book. He's one of the the writers of Star Trek: uh, The Next Generation. But he was an adventure game designer. He did um, some work for a few different companies. He actually ended up teaching, um, but he he was an incredible guy, um, really smart and um, a wonderful writer. So I. I spoke with him and he and I would go um, party crawling at GDC every year. That, that was a lot of fun. So, yeah, uh, I, I'd say early on in the PC industry, it wasn't huge. And you knew a lot of the major players. Um, Cliff Lisinski, the guy who um, was in charge of Gears of War and um, Unreal, the Unreal series, um, and a bunch of other stuff. And he has a quote in my book. You know, I, keep, I still keep in touch with him. Uh, Tom Hall, one of the, des- the designers of Doom, I got a quote from him from my, my book, and I still keep in touch with him. He actually lives nearby in, uh, uh, in, in California, so I plan on having a beer with him sometime.
2: <laughs> and I, as far as you're, you're, you've got the uh, launch, and you've actually got an actual launch, an actual bookstore coming up this time, which you weren't able to do last time. Are you planning on taking that around a bit of tour if, if things kind of clear up with COVID-wise? Or
1: You know, cross my fingers. I set my signing up before the Delta hit and turned into 94% of the cases that are out there. Um, I don't know. I absolutely want to. I mean, one of the reasons I decided to write is because I wanted to connect with readers. I wanted to actually, not, I said, um, I started out with a small press and they, and that, End up being a mistake, but I wanted to be published. I figured that's better than being an independent author and and self-publishing. So I was with a small press, and when COVID started hitting, they said, uh, "We're not going to do paper books anymore. It just doesn't make any business sense. We're only going to do eBooks." And and I realized, you know, I didn't get into the into writing books just to make money. If I did that, I was doing the wrong thing. Um, I did it because I wanted to tell stories and I wanted to make a book that I could hold in my hand and that I could sign and hand to somebody else who really really wanted to read it and I could see it on store shelves see it on bookshelves you can't do any of that with ebooks ebooks it turns into just a business and I was not I was not down for that so that's when I severed my relationship with the small press and decided to do it all on my own again it was kind of like getting into the audiobook there was so much to learn that and I'm still learning uh, especially about marketing marketing and indie publishing is tough because there's so many people that you have to distinguish yourself from.
2: Actually a question on the, on the physically publishing your own books there. Cause I know when you were on last time, you were just getting the hardcover version ready for your first novel. Um, how has sales been for you percentage wise between hardcover versus soft cover? Like I, I assume the collectors are the ones buying the hardcover soft cards, the more casual reader. So mm-hmm. is it a, a much bigger balance towards the soft cover or?
1: So I would say that most people buy the ebook, just from sheer numbers. But after that, I would say the most people who buy, um, a printed version of it. Um, I have mostly, uh, I, I see sales mostly from my web store and I think that's because they hear about it in some way that leads them to me. So they get my links and they realize they can get a signed version from the web store and maybe they find a coupon or something. Um, and so, and once they've done that, they usually want a prestige edition. They're saying, you know, I, it doesn't really matter if it costs a little bit more. I want the best possible version of the book. And so I've sold way more hardcovers than softcovers on my my web store. No, oh, cool. And
2: as far as book distribution and, and, and you know, chains and stuff like that, uh, is, is that the same balance there or is that more softcover oriented?
1: So uh, definitely more softcover. Um, no question. And I don't think I have a strong distribution chain um, Amazon has a an extended reach to sell books but I see like maybe a dollar if they sell a a, a, a paperback somewhere um, so I have not been pushing people to go through them what I have done is actually go to individual retailers and say I will supply you books so I have author copies and I put them on those shelves <coughs> and with the exception of like maybe two stores um, they've all wanted soft copies they they don't want the hardcovers.
0: Okay. I got two questions for you before I forget. So number one, on your 15% off code, could we request a hard copy and request an autographed hard copy on that site?
1: Absolutely. Um, And in fact, because I changed my cover um, from I think the one that keeps popping up in the the feed there um, to this, this new cover, I have older versions of the paperback that I am tossing into a bundle with the new book either the the soft cover or the hard cover for 5 bucks. Okay. You can get a paperback of the old cover for 5 bucks if you buy the new one and you can get 15% off that whole bundle if Excellent. you want it. Excellent.
0: Uh, I will be I'll be ordering right after the show. I was I was going <laughs> to say, I, I would like cuz I'm I'm the, I'm that geek who wants the premium edition. Is it possible to get a hard cover of the original Child of Chaos with the old and new cover?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, they're they're both available there and you get 15% off everything. Yeah, with this
0: code. and then I'll just you know I'll put uh, uh, David Ladd just say thank you David Ladd and we'll um, trim, but yeah <laughs> yeah so uh, no, that's yeah. cool that's cool All
1: right. you, you can leave a note for whatever you want me to, right. to write on there
0: now question number two talking about going on a tour and meeting people and pressing the flesh any chance in November you might be interested in being a uh, speaker at Coco Fest in Chicago
1: Chicago is is so far away and uh, I haven't traveled much for a long time. actually my wife just went to Italy and we were really nervous about that about that trip. Um, so I can I can think about it I can keep it in mind. I mean I would love to be there. no question um, but I'm not sure if I can make it. I'm not sure if I can actually
0: do that travel. okay, fair enough. okay.
2: And then I have a question that you mentioned earlier about, you know, having these hard deadlines on video games where you have to have it released by a certain you know season or whatever that you're trying to hit. Since you're self-publishing, you don't really have, you know, somebody over top of you saying you have to have the book done by the state, but do you have an internal, I have to have this book done by a certain time to kind of incentivize yourself to finish it? Or are you leaving yourself open-ended? Like the story goes where the story goes. It takes as long as it takes.
1: So um, I would say that I am in the world of independent writers extremely slow um, I have been releasing a book a year and for if you if you're traditionally pu- published um, I'd say that's fine um, it, kind of people expect uh, there to be no more than a book a year in the world of indie if you actually expect to make money, you kind of have to be publishing a book a month and I just can't bring myself to do that. Um, I had no idea it was that fast for independent. It's crazy. I mean, people go, people say, okay, well, I have six series out and these ones are hitting and these ones aren't. I'm writing to market. I know exactly how I'm I'm marketing those particular books to those particular people. Like I said, it's impossible to really get your head around all of that. And so I have never really, I've never really been able to view it that way. Um, I've never, even in, in, in anything creative I've done, I've definitely written, I've definitely created stuff that I thought would be popular, but I've also created stuff that I find personally really compelling. And so the books that I write, the world that I'm in, i it's very personal for me. Um, I'm definitely not writing to market. I'm definitely not writing shifter romance, you know, dark death fantasy or whatever is popular nowadays, because there's <laughs> there's so many different genres that just keep popping up and and, uh, and then they go away the next month. And so if you don't hit that wave, then you're kind of screwed. So what I figure is I'm looking at it from the long game. I'm going to create a, a world that I think is really compelling and has a lot of potential for a lot of growth long term. And I just hope that people go along for the ride with me. Uh, oh, and as far as your, the actual question you, you, you put, yes, a deadline is kind of important Um, because you have other people who are involved. So like I need to have an editor, uh, come in and, um, and take my first or second or third draft and turn it into something that will help me get to the end. And I need to get on her schedule. So I need to know when I can have my work done for her to start working on. I need to be working with cover designers. I need to be working with the promotional sites. You know, there are things that you need to line up that are not just you. So, um, I chose this Sunday as my launch date, partially because it was a year after my first launch date and I didn't think I could do I could get there, especially with the audiobook. I was really worried about getting the audiobook approved. But um, but I managed to do it. And it's because I had that extra two weeks. But deadlines are not arbitrary, but I am the one setting them. I guess <laughs> I guess okay. that answers your question.
2: I, I just figured like maybe with a completely independent author that you would just you know free will to do whatever you want, whenever you want. But I didn't realize there's so many other things tied into it that you have to, Yeah, you have to book people to do things.
1: I think it depends on the, the professionality of the product that you want to deliver. If you need to have a, a cover design, if you do it all yourself and then, you know, you can just decide one day, okay, you know, hit print. Um, but it doesn't usually work out that way. Not if you really want to to be a professional product.
2: Okay. Um, and there's a question from the chat here, I'm not sure what the acronym stands for, hopefully you can do, uh, from Jeremy Landry says, is the speed, is that speed more related to SEO than actual material?
1: The speed related to, is it search engine optimization, maybe? I'm not sure if that's I'm meant sure. for me. I was assuming you
2: talked about the speed of writing or or getting it done, but I'm not sure exactly what he meant there. So.
1: Yeah, I'm I, I'm going to need more information about that question before I get. Oh, hey, Jeremy, it. if you want to clarify your question
2: a bit in the chat, we'll we'll reask it. Like any other point? I like the "I like money"
1: comment. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I saw that go by too. <laughs> And also, uh, some since we've got some uh, viewers here that have not seen your interview from before, and may have some questions on some of your Coco games. I'd like to encourage them to try to ask some of those as well. Um, one thing I did want to show you, though, because um, this would have been pretty cool for you to have seen back in the day, uh, is uh, I've got a video clip now comparing Kim guy the the. Uh, actually, is that how you pronounce it? Is Kim or Kiam or how? Kim guy? Kiam guy. Okay. Yeah, I actually um,
1: did. I did the voice digitalization where it says that at the beginning of the game.
2: And then drop the pitch down a bit.
1: Game guy. Doobie Ninja. Yeah. Because
2: there was an OS9 port done. I think Kevin Darling did most of it, and Eddie Kunz, I think, finished the last tail end of it because Kevin was busy with a whole bunch of stuff at that particular time in his life. Right. And uh, it, it ran a little bit slower under OS9. So when we did Nitrous9, which kicks in the 6 or nine native mode and it speeds up things by 10, 15%, it kind of equaled back out. It was running about the same speed it was under uh, this basic. And of course, now we've got this new Gimme X board that Ed Snyder's designed that actually runs the Coco 3 at 2.86 megahertz. And I actually took a video and audio clip because I didn't adjust the audio for it, but I've actually got them running side by side. So you can see the speed difference between the uh. original Coco 3 you would have seen back in the day versus what uh-huh. this new 3 megahertz version does. So. Um, but before I get into that, Jeremy is uh, adding some things here. I was talking about releasing a book every month.
1: Ah, and so, um, and is that because of search engine optimization? Um, I'd have to assume that's what
2: that SEO means. But he's saying, is that speed more related to SEO than actual material? So uh, actual material would obviously be producing a book in a month, you know, a complete book right. thing.
1: I, I honestly like think why are they has, forcing
2: that speed? I guess is what he's
1: asking. I think it does. has to do with maintaining your audience. Um, because your audience constantly wants new stuff, especially audience for that particular kind of fiction. Um, so you're writing, you know, they're not big novels. Um, but if someone is sort of dependent on you for their entertainment and you're, and you're giving them a, you know, 50, 40 to 50 to 60,000 word novel every month, um, then they're expecting it, and you know, it's kind of like episodes. Um, and and it's like and a
2: serialization, and, like in the old days type thing. I,
1: I but it doesn't necessarily have to be like the same series or the same world or same characters or anything. As long as you're providing what they're looking for, uh, I think I think that that's a major factor. That's how you keep money coming in.
2: Uh, it's like having a magazine subscription or something like that. At that point, it's, yeah, uh, you're yeah. subscribing like a monthly audiobook. book.
1: I,
3: I yeah, I think audiobook. so.
1: Um there's a whole uh, Facebook group called um, thirty Books to Fifty k that talks just about this. It's all about the business of of being an independent author and making money and they say you need thirty books to get to fifty thousand dollars a year and you have to do all of these particular steps and i'm just I'm not in that world
2: yeah you 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 want the um the quality, not the quantity.
0: Right, and honestly, fifty thousand dollars a year—if that's your sole income—it's not a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, I hate to sound like the one percenter here, but yeah, if I could only have fifty thousand dollars a year, I would be in huge debt.
1: <laughs> you're, you're not wrong. If someone is dependent, but the thing is, making money an in independent as an independent author is not easy to do. Fifty thousand dollars to people who are doing that actually is a is a pretty good thing to shoot for. But you're right, as your sole income that I, I, for people who are retired or something, who are not really dependent on it, that's great. And it's a great goal, but you're, you're absolutely right.
0: Cool. Well, I, I'll throw my little demo on here. Maybe you're just, yeah, I want to see it. You're going to share. So I'm <laughs> going to stop sharing then, Curtis. And I was just going to say too, I was going to open the floor to the audience and to the panel for any Coco specific questions before I'm not sure we're getting close to wrapping up. I want to make sure people, uh, who specifically wanted to know about the cocoa past, that you get those questions out there in the chat or from the panel. Uh, yeah,
3: and
2: during this little uh, video demo, would be a good time for you guys to kind of get them written down and send them to us in the chat here or, or write them down and get ready to ask on the panel.
0: Yeah. So just a little to, bit of
2: a preamble. You're uh, able to like,
0: share whenever ready there, Curtis.
2: Yeah. So I've got the, uh, the original COCO3 on the left, which is a standard two megahertz version of it. I started the sound like obviously you don't want to play them together at the same time as it just becomes a schmozzy mess of sound so you'll hear the high pitch 3 megahertz version running first and that's the video on the right and then I switch over like these are recorded quick time movies so then it switches over and you'll hear it on the original sound on the left which is running a little bit faster than the original pitch was too because of the native
0: mode 60 or nine Have five. you made a TikTok video for this?
2: No, I don't do TikTok I'm
0: just going to sure the bones a little bit here so the one on the right is the faster one yeah the sound right now is coming from the left one yeah but, uh, yeah yeah it, I, I, it obviously looks a lot smoother when it scrolls
2: yeah and this one wasn't frame locked on the old sign version so you can actually Kind of get an idea of speed here, but especially like at the beginning, you can definitely see the scrolling speed and the kicking speed and everything else. So, and it sounds like Smurf Ninja. And I thought it was just cool to, to show you, like you know, with with some of the upgrades we're doing in in the modern times here. I mean, if you had had that back in the day, I mean, you could have pulled off some stuff there. I'm sure you you probably had a few projects you wanted to do and just weren't it wasn't capable of it at the time, but that might have been the.
1: Yeah, I look back at the frame rate of the original game, and I'm like, oh my god, how 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 was this playable? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, the funny thing is, is some of us have gotten older. Now it's too fast, even with the slow rate. You know, our reflexes aren't up to that anymore. So,
1: <laughs> right.
2: That's, that's the nice thing about adventure games, I guess, because it doesn't matter what age you are. You you do it at your own pace. You can sit on a screen and think, you know, how am I going to solve this puzzle here? What do I have to pick up and manipulate or whatever?
1: It's so true. It, it's although, age
2: non-centric, whereas arcade uh, games, wow.
1: Although I look back, I mean, you compare something like Inquest of the Star-Lord to something like Death Gate. And, I mean, the design evolved a lot, too, because my thinking did. So it wasn't the hardware that stopped me. It was... Although that's not true. The, I mean, I could only fit so much onto a Cocoa disc. And so the adventures were, you know, by necessity, a lot smaller. Um, so there was only so much I could fit onto there. But, you know, something like Deathgate, I still look back at Deathgate and think that that was probably the best adventure that I've ever written. And, st- and people still really re- refer back to it as uh, one of those seminal adventure games. So, um, so in Quest of the Star-Lord, you know, it was great for what it was. <laughs> but I, I got a lot better after
2: that. Yeah, and yeah. I remember what a seminal one that was, because that was one of the earliest I think Computerware might have had one before you as far as a full-color Coco 3-level adventure game uh, with, with full right. graphics, etc. There was a, actually, it was a Xanth one, I think, was a little bit before you from Computerware, I trying remember who did it, Scott Oh, or oh yeah. I, I because he, he learned to use palettes. so he's making, like, lightning flash and stuff. So.
1: <laughs> I did that, too.
2: Yep. Yeah. yeah, well, we were all learning at that time. I mean, there were so many capabilities of there wasn't just we had more color it takes a lot more RAM and is slower, but you had palette you you do special animations that
0: you never would have dreamed of doing before.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: We do have a few questions. We have a few questions from the live chat. So David Lord wants to know what assembler did you use?
1: So I used Phantasm, um, which was um, Roland Knight's assembler. And I was actually going to market that. I was going to put together a package and, and get that, uh, sell that. Um, But he was not as uh, as um, involved. He kind of sort of said, fine, you know, I made it, and and I don't want anything more to do with it. And I didn't feel comfortable selling it without support. Um, but it was awesome, and it was so fast. It was really, really fast. I loved it. It's every. It's the one they used that Dave Dyes used on all the, the Dicom products, and I used it on all mine after he, he gave it to me.
0: Hmm. Uh, and then Paul Thayer, who's a, a modern uh Coco3 game designer. He says, it looks like a lot of your sprites um, were compiled for speed. Said, for example, for example Kim Guy and Warrior King. Um, what tools did you use to draw and compile your sprites? Um,
1: I wrote my own sprite compiler. Um, it might have even been in basic. Um, it would just strip through all the, the graphic data. I think to draw them, I used either... I think I used Coco I think that's what I did most of my graphics in.
0: Cool. Using Cocoa tools to do your Cocoa stuff. (laughs) I didn't have anything else at the time. Yeah. (laughs) Nowadays, people are pulling stuff off the internet and writing a writing a utility to convert that into a Cocoa image format, and then just you know, feeding it all in, which is great for speed of production. But there's something for hand drawing all your pixels. You know.
1: (laughs) I I remember when I was when I was assembling a uh, a game. I'd have to like make a change, especially when I was trying to debug. I'd make a change, and then I'd have to go off and do something else while it assembled, and then I would come back and see if it worked. You know, after like having a sandwich or something. And uh, and and sometimes it took forever to debug to find a bug doing it that way. But yeah, we had no choice. That's what we did in the Coco days.
2: Yeah, I mean Nick Morendi's. I mean he's he's also a current games developer, but he does his graphic work on his Amiga because that's what he used when he had his Coco three at the time too. Ironically, he's never written an Amiga game. He just does all his Cocoa development on the Amiga. It's kind of his Cocoa development station. That makes sense. Sound.
0: I think you answered this question on your last interview, but Scott Cooper wants to know, would you consider making another Cocoa game someday?
1: I, so I'm not going to uh, uh, say no. Um, someday I might, but there's so many other things that I'm, I'm currently working on that I don't know when that would happen.
0: Right. Okay, that's cool. This never say never. You're not going to preemptively say no to the notion of that. So that's cool.
1: Well, And the truth is that, you know, uh, it's not the most powerful development system out there or um, platform that you would make games for. But, I mean, we all have this place in our heart for it. You know, making a new Cocoa game would, would be kind of fun and would would be neat so here's Um,
0: here's here's an idea since you're already (laughs) working on fiction and you've got this universe and these characters what about interactive fiction slash adventure game based on your book series
1: uh absolutely um you know i'd love to be be playing in that world Uh, uh you never know
2: Okay, yeah. and obviously the, the development—you uh, know—having to run even with Phantasm being as fast as it was. I mean, obviously, it's, like you said, you go have a sandwich by waiting for an assembly. <laughs> now. now we've got all these cross assemblers. Now you you can assemble a huge project the size of you know the entire Next Nine operating system with all games right. installed in like ten seconds, twenty seconds now. So obviously, that that part's not an issue anymore.
1: Although it has been decades since I programmed, <laughs> so there would be another learning curve.
2: That's a relearning curve. I think I, I took a break from it too, and it actually it came back faster than I was expecting. I, I was not expecting to, to remember stuff as quick as I did.
1: You know, part of making the games back in the day, it wasn't just design and wasn't just art. I mean, I really enjoyed programming, um, and it's kind of a shame that I haven't had a chance to do that ever since college, or well, ever since I was an engineer at Legend. Um, you know, there's a there's a beauty to coding that it, it is puzzle solving um, that's really yep. neat that I haven't had a chance to do in a long time.
2: And as you mentioned earlier, I mean, when you're, you're you're pairing like your your what you knew how to program when you did say Warrior King first, and then by the time you got to King Guy to be Ninja, you know you improved so much. I've seen that in Dave Dye's stuff too, because I I did some six through nine tweaks to speed up some of his really old games, you know, from even before DICOM type thing uh-huh. like Color Car Action, which he sold through Tom Mix. And I mean, he hadn't learned stack blasting yet, so I just went and changed one routine. That's all I changed, and it doubled the speed of the game, you know, pretty well overnight type thing. Right. So I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of well, cool. Just seeing the evolution of programmers as they went, and, and yours in particular too, going from Kung Fu Dude up to working up to, to be Ninja, et cetera, and, and Dave and a few others. And it, it, to me, that's fascinating. It, it just has a you know, as semi programmer, doesn't really it isn't really capable of writing good games myself, obviously. Uh, but just, just seeing that evolution and how much they learned, you know, there's a one year span between these two and look how much they improved. <laughs>
1: you know, what was really hard back in the day, though, is there wasn't the community of people who could really talk about this stuff. I mean, you kind of had to figure it out yourself. Um, I mean, I I was really lucky that I got involved with with Dave and he did help me out. But I remember, you know, being very frustrated that there wasn't there was no Internet. You know, there was no, no real way, except if you get on Delphi, maybe, you know, to, to really BBS talk. Or BDS or
2: CompuServe or something. Yeah.
1: Right. To, to, to get involved in the community of helpful people. Um, because everybody was like, you know, if I'm doing it, I'm doing it for myself. And so, you know, I, I just, I didn't know enough people to, to really help me in that journey. Um, and so I, I was how I was, I think people now would have a much better chance at coming up to speed and getting better so that they don't have to solve everything. They don't have to reinvent the wheel uh, on their yeah. own, simply because there are great communities out there.
2: I, I seem to remember, like, back in, in the 80s, that there was a much more proprietary sense to developers, too. Like, yo, know, I figured out how to do this thing. I'm not telling anybody else how to do it, because that's going to be my stuff only type of thing. So,
1: Exactly, exactly. I yeah. mean,
2: there was public domain software a little bit back at the time, but it wasn't anywhere near as big as it is now with stuff like Linux, you know, where you can just go grab it and take a look at the source.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I remember... There were a couple of manuals um, for Coco manuals and that um, that were kind of useful. <laughs> that was almost it. That's what you had to work with.
2: By the way, we got an offer to you from Paul Thayer, who is uh, Stevie mentioned is uh, you know does his own coco three stuff these days. He's doing his own games. He said, I would help create that game series if you want to make one based on the book. You don't have to do the actual all the coding yourself there. You might just be the game designer.
3: So I I, I will take that seriously. I'll think about it. Uh, Kind of along the lines of, would you do another game? When things started to taper off for the Coco, did you leave anything on the table? Was there any projects that you got started but never finished? Was there a game out there or two maybe that you started? Or did you pretty much wrap up everything before you kind of stepped away?
1: I think I had some ideas um, for things that I might want to do. But I'll tell you, the thing that was out there at the end was the Contras. That was the thing that I really wanted to get done and it was impossible to finish. It took three programmers um, that just kept coming in and then giving up and then coming in and then giving up again. And finally it was Jeff Steidl who who finished that thing up. But I, I was advertising that thing almost, I want to say, you know, six months to a year before I actually was able to make it available to to sell. So that was my last big project I think I released um, under Sunbug Systems. And so Uh, yeah, I, I think at that point I was starting to do stuff for legend and being legend was effectively a startup, um, making adventure games for the PC. And I was a new employee at that startup. And so I was working crazy hours. So I really didn't have a lot of bandwidth, um, to be developing on the side. And I was also actually composing music, um, for those games too. So that was my, my off
0: time. I think there was another question from the live chat I forgot to uh, throw your way earlier but what was one of your favorite SunDog games? Oh.
1: The ones I I wrote or the ones that I produced
0: or, or just any of them love. Oh. This one of your one of your favorite some of your favorite games. What, what's your favorite released?
2: personally written one? What's your favorite one you you produced and so?
1: I think Kium Guy um, might be my favorite arcade game that I made just because it was the the most advanced but I really loved photon um, I played that game for a long time. I found it addictive, which is why I said that on the cover. And in quest of the star lord, I mean I love writing adventure games I, I I really enjoyed making that one. Every one of them has sort of a little place in my heart. It's hard to say which is my favorite um, I, I'll, just, I'll I'll say those for now, but all of them I didn't I didn't release a game that I didn't love in one for for some reason or another.
0: Uh so your fifteen percent off deal, are you shipping that out of your house or is that coming from a fulfillment center? That is coming from me. Okay. So if I wanted to do a package deal and maybe get some of your new in stock in the baggies, still have that new game smell stuff, is that is that on your website or should I maybe just email you to get a whole bundle on getting Yeah.
1: Yeah, just contact me directly and okay. we'll work something out.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think I'd like to get the whole the whole collection at this point <laughs> save save money on shipping right to fit, fit it all in one box right so absolutely <laughs> sounds good to me <laughs> Got a couple that, comments he, from paul thayer too on the contrary
2: so the Contras was great it was really well done considering the console and all the program trade-offs and of course we had doug Maston and jeff steil and yourself all involved in the programming and doug maston i think is actually on our discord isn't he stevie i think he's actually gotten in, in active in the coco community and I know he's done a few uh, utilities that some of the new games have been using for compression and decompression. And he said, the final boss is too easy, though. Yeah. (laughs) For the few people of us that have actually made it that far, I guess. Sure. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, that was a real saga. Um, And it was very clear that he was a talented programmer um, when he showed it to me. And that's why I signed it up. And that's why I was so um, convinced it was going to be a great game that I was advertising it before it was finished. Which is something you shouldn't do. It's one of those, you know, deadline things. You got to get the ad in there um, before you actually have all the pieces in place. And uh, and I'm really glad it was able to to get to completion because it was it was a fantastic game, and uh, and Jeff was a an outstanding programmer as well, and he was able to come in and, and make that happen. And it's it's not an easy task to come in and take over someone else's work and uh, and release the final product. So. You know, it was plus, really
2: Doug, Doug was like you. He was young. He was still in high school, and he wrote "Contras" the first version there. That he yeah, did. that was.
1: It was amazing how young he was and how sophisticated it was, uh, given that. Um, so, and I think that was one. Of, he just bit off a little bit more than he could chew. Um, so, uh, but I'm glad he. I'm glad he did. It was frustrating at the time, but the end result was fantastic.
2: Yeah, agreed. There's still a few bugs in the two-player mode, but as Jeff explained in his blog there, he said, I didn't have a second guy to try it with, so I couldn't <laughs> test any of that stuff. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was very much a one-man show back
3: then.
0: Yep. I have no further questions, Your Honor. Yeah, uh, uh, Paul Thayer is asking, <laughs> do you still talk to Jeff? Oh,
1: no, I haven't. I haven't spoken been to Jeff in a long, long time. I think I saw him at a, a Cocoa Fest at one point um where he was doing a a talk on the graph express 2.0 but that was way long ago
2: and, and doug maston have you been in contact with him because i know he kind of saw your previous interview i don't know if he ever got in contact with you but
1: no that that is the last contact i've had with doug i was really surprised to see him pop up there last time but that, that was really great
2: yeah, I'm going to have to try to reach out to him and try to, like, we've been organized so many interviews lately uh, where we actually have to, you know, schedule them now instead of just you know, winging them. Right. But I'm going to have to see if I can get Doug on, just give kind of his side of the story and, you know, developing Contras as a teenager in high school type thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was it was rough for him. I remember talking him through that and, uh, and just wondering, is this going to happen? <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's cool. Well, definitely thank you for your time, Glenn. Thank you for all you have done in the past and all you continue to do to create great content for people to enjoy. And um, I'm definitely going to be hitting, I'm going to be using my coupon code. So I'll be, <laughs> I'll be hitting you up for a big order. And uh, whenever you have anything else you want to talk about down the road, just feel free to come on. You've got an open door, drop in any time um love to hear from your future projects doesn't even have to be related to the cocoa because whatever you're, big, whatever you're cooking we're eating you know so <laughs> and a big congratulations on your second vote. absolutely absolutely
1: thank, thank you so much I, I really appreciate you guys having me on especially because the stuff i'm i'm promoting is not cocoa related but the cocoa community is was is my first big love i mean it's it's a it part of the thing that sort of makes me who i am and, and what i produce and i do want to show off the new book <laughs> just once more <laughs> game of war it's coming out tomorrow and all of those things that we talked about all those discounts and, and everything they're either going to expire tomorrow or some of them are going to start up tomorrow but remember the 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 book uh, child of chaos um is free uh tomorrow on the ebook so you can read that and if you like that definitely pick up game of war that's on kind kindle and amazon yes, that is on okay. amazon and I, kindle i have
0: I have the link for Amazon cha- uh, Child of Chaos up here, too. So.
1: Yep. So I hope to, uh, if you have any interest in fantasy at all, um, people seem to like it. So I hope you guys can like it, too. And yeah. and again, thank you so much for having me on. Um, you are you're you're one of the places I think about when I want to come talk about things.
0: Oh, that's it's an honor. One. That's an, I, an honor. I, I really yeah, appreciate that. Yeah.
2: And I, I love the fact that you still have one of your full color ads behind you. in a <laughs> yeah, frame. that is so cool. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I realized that when I was putting the promo together. I'm like, I had that thing on my wall. I might as well show it off. It's uh, definitely a place of honor up there.
0: That is cool. Yeah, reality kind of sucks. So it's good to be able to jump into some fantasy from time to time. (laughs) 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 I think we all need more of that right now. Yeah.